welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with photographer Michael Simon. Michael is one of those rare folks that combines talent, passion, and drive in a way that makes them very good at what they do. And over the years, he has learned how to be the photographer he has wanted to be. I first met Michael in the 1990s, and even then when he was still a young college student, he had a seriousness and respect for the craft of photography that has only seemed to increase. And in talking with him, you will notice a trait that goes very well with success, an ability to adapt to situations and make the thing happen. Whether it's on a project, with a client, or in life, the ability to meet life where it meets you and still be able to walk your path and get the thing done, it's a very important skill to have. So without further introduction, here's my interview with Michael Simon. How did you get into photography? When I was a kid, my mother encouraged any kind of creative endeavor that I, that I wanted to venture into. And she, uh, she would, you know, whatever, whatever I was into, she would supply all the tools or the, the, the paints or the clay or the whatever. And I got into photography and she encouraged it and nurtured it. And I just fell in love with it. Just, it was just really interesting. I loved the, you know, the creativity of it and also the tools of it, the machines, um, it just, it really, as a young kid, it really captured my, like, full attention. How old do you think you were when that happened? Probably around, like, 10, 12, okay. something, wow. something like that. I mean, I remember, like, you know, you know, this was, like, mid to late 80s, and there was no internet or whatever. Like, summertime was fully outside and, you know, project-oriented. Just She worked from home. Uh, she was an artist. She was a photographic retouch artist for Dementi Studios in Richmond. Oh wow! And so, so she kind of had a, you know, she had a, a toe in the photography world. You know, she needed some time to focus at her desk. <laughs> she, I mean, she literally retouched. Like she was a retouch artist. So, but in the old school way, like she used oils and uh, pens and pencils and other uh, mediums to like actually make changes directly on print and on negatives. She had like big goggly eye magnifiers that she would use to like make fine uh, changes to negatives. So you know, I think she needed focus time and she'd be like, here, here's a roll of film. Don't come back until it's been shot. So, and then, and then would she you would guys just develop it, it there? Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd drop it off. <laughs> we would drop it off um, and have it done. I, I mean, I did eventually get into like darkroom stuff in the house ruining mm. my family's bathrooms, but that was <laughs> a few years later. So at that point, were you, go, were you working just with a 35 millimeter? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, she, you know, I think she had, she had a hand-me-down of a hand-me-down camera that she had gotten like from a relative. It was a Pentax. Um, and she, you know, kind of gave me full license to use it whenever I wanted. So, you know, I kind of got started off with like a pretty nice camera. Oh, and that, you know, wow. there was probably also like little pla- uh, plastic point and shoots before that, mm-hmm. actually. But it was like a mix of like a nice Pentax SLR and, uh, you know, those, those crappy old, you know, those like $15, you know, you everyone had one or two back in the like day. Like those Vivitar ones? 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just not like an easy one shot. Something. Right. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Man. So when you started doing that, um, did you also take that stuff in school or were you pretty much just doing it at home? Yeah. Eventually high school came around and, you know, there was like photography classes, you know, and, and in high school, uh, the creative classes were like my little quiet island, you know, like I used mm-hmm. to go into the art room at lunch and just spend lunch in the art room. But yeah, there was eventually a photography class at Clover Hill and uh, it was good. It was like a, you know, dark, they had a full dark room. And I mean, I think at the time that wasn't spectacular. I think that was just kind of normal having a mm-hmm. full dark room with all the stuff, you know, that was just kind of regular. But now looking back, it's like, wow. That was a fully kitted out darkroom. So I, I fully like jumped into photography as soon as, you know, as I got as deep as I could whenever I could. Like if those classes available, I would take them. So when I met you, it was, I guess it was around 1997. I met you through, you know, basically the punk hardcore scene here in Richmond. Um, and you, if I remember correctly, I think you were going to Savannah College of Art and Design. But you also, I believe, you already had a job, right? So in 97, I was in my second year of art school at Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. And uh, so I wasn't I wasn't working in photography, but I was studying it. And And I left Richmond in 95. Okay, okay, All right. When I had met you, I think you weren't living in Richmond. I think you were you were coming back a lot like because you were living between New York and um, or New Jersey and uh, Savannah. So what, what happened, my little personal situation is in 95, my parents dropped me off at college. And then and at that moment, I was living in Richmond, but they dropped me off in Savannah. And they then drove back to Richmond, packed up the house and moved to New Jersey. And I never, oh, wow. my parents never lived in Richmond again after that. So yeah, so every time I would go home from college, I would then go to Jersey, which was completely foreign to me at that time. Like photography is one of those things where, you know, um, I mean, I guess it's just kind of like any other art class. There's folks that go through it and they kind of, you know, maybe they develop a passion for it, but then they, you know, they're like, oh, I got to get serious. And they pick something else to kind of do with their, do with their life. And then other people actually go in and like, you know, do that and do that with their life, do the thing they're actually studying. Um, how did you find the classes at like Savannah and stuff for like setting you up to actually do that for a living? For me, it goes back even to like before Savannah mm-hmm. in high school. I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I felt confused by the real working world. I was like, I don't want to manage a hotel. I don't want to be a plumber. I don't want to, I don't want to work in a corporate office. I just felt like those are the only things you could like you were allowed to do. I just felt completely passionless about any of that stuff. And some, uh, a lady, like a recruiter type lady came to my photography class in high school. She was working for SCAD for the uh, art school in Savannah. And she was basically just, she pitched us. She pitched the whole photography class. She was like, you know, trolling for applicants because, you know, I think Savannah was like a small school at that time and the internet wasn't mm-hmm. a thing and market, you know, it was hard to be a young, small art school and get the word out. So she was like going from high school to high school uh, art classes. So I did like a short application right there on the spot and I got in. I think they asked me to submit a portfolio and I did. 
my mom was stoked about that. Like we spent so much time making that portfolio. She was really into it. We made this really great portfolio of photos that I had taken all of my young life. It was probably like 20 images. And I got a scholarship from that portfolio. Not like a full ride, but like a pretty fat scholarship. Wow. Because, I mean, it wasn't cheap. So that helped a lot. And I was like, shit, I can, I can go be a photographer. And in my mind, it wasn't for funsies. I knew my right. parents were paying a, a bunch of money and they, you know, it was not you know, easy money for them. I kind of felt like, dude, I'm going to go be trained to be a photographer now so that I can be a photographer. It wasn't like kind of a funsy little dalliance. You know? I was, it was serious right. business. And throughout my whole time there, like every, it was like one time. My great, I, I was, I was on the Dean's list the entire time. And it was one time that I don't know. I can't remember what it was. I think it was like some stupid, um, elective classic math or some shit where I was not doing well. And I was threatened, uh, of being kicked off the Dean's list. And my dad was like, you get kicked off the Dean's list, pack your shit. You're coming home. <laughs> oh my God. Like it was like, it was serious. It was not a joke. Like I had to do well. Um, right. But the whole time, the whole time my mind was like, when I graduate from this school, I'm going to be a photographer. I have to go somewhere and be a photographer. I think like a large percentage of those kids who I studied with graduated from photography school and became real estate agents or something. They oh, man. did not like they never made a dollar from photography. Not not mad at them, not judging them. But yeah, I I didn't think I had a choice. Right. So you didn't feel a choice at all. Like you felt like this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, like, when am I going to spend four years studying photography to not end up working in photography? It just seemed kind of, it just didn't make sense to that's me. A real, that's a really good point. So how did you get your first job out of there? Well, so I had some really great professors. I mean, I lucked, I lucked into like a really great group of professors at SCAD. Like these people were really passionate. And if you showed passion to them about the craft, they, they would bend over backwards to connect you and help you. But at some point, I think it was my second year, I went to one of my professors and I said, I want to get an internship this summer. And I wanted to be in New York because my parents had moved within commuting range of the city. So I could stay okay. with them right? And take the train in. And my professor picked up the phone and he called three people. He called a photographer named Burke Glenn, who is this like legendary, older Magnum photographer. And he called right. Magnum, which is a photo agency, a storied, legendary photo agency. And he called Contact Press Images, which is another legendary photo agency. Uh, and he put me in connection with these people. I turned down Contact and I accepted the internship they are contact offer me an internship as well, but that was like a small, a much smaller operation. Very cool. Mm. I liked it a lot, but it was just, just felt smaller and it felt like less, uh, I don't know, a little less exciting. I mean, they had like, they have a roster of like killer photographers, but Magnum just felt bigger. And so I went and worked for Magnum for the summer. And I also, uh, two days a week worked for Burke Glenn in his office. So I had two wow. in big internships that summer, and uh, it was huge. It was like a huge eye-opener for me. I got to work in the city. I got to be in the city a lot. I got to work for all these legends, 
also, you know, got to meet a lot of other young photographers who were also interning. It just kind right. of put me in this. It put me in this whole pool of amazing photography. You know, it was really just. It was one of the best summers of my life. So Bert Glenn, um, I'm not familiar with him. Is he? Is he, so I know that like there's kind of like uh, commercial photographers, and then there's kind of like art photographer like does that make sense like which one do you think he was Bert was a hardcore dyed in the wool commercial photographer with a strong foundation in photojournalism he was definitely a storyteller you know he was definitely a photojournalist absolutely but a little bit later in his life he used his observational skills to make you know uh, he worked he worked for like some of the biggest corporations in the world um, right and he did very well he did very well for himself and because he was a member of magnum he did very well for them you know because they take a cut and i think you know photographers like bert really helped magnum get through some hard times money-wise because he was making so much money through his commercial work so much yeah. of bert's earlier work was like hardcore photojournalism he spent time with the you know the president kennedy and he spent time in russia he spent time in japan uh creating these like very elaborate very incredible long form photo stories for, you know, like Look Magazine and National Geo and, and Time and, you know, all the big publications of the day. Ladies, I'm journal. And when he would do that, would he, would he be there like independently and then sell like the story or the images to those magazines or was he there usually on behalf of those magazines? I mean, I'm sure it was a mix. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm sure that, you know, he would go into like the bigger stories with a, you know, with a publication on the hook, you know, they, they were probably right. like helping out, you know, um, forwarding money, yeah. making it easier to, to do the things he needed to do. I, I don't know if he did a ton of spec work, but, but yeah, he was like, you know, he was a very, very sharp businessman. So Magnum, the, the only thing I know about them is that they, they license images, right? Well, so I'm by I'm by no means an expert on Magnum, but so I'll, right. but that's never stopped me from wading into a story. <laughs> um, so Magnum started, um, I believe, in uh, man, I'm going to say 1925. That could be wrong. Uh, and they were founded by Henri Cartier-Bresson and uh, Robert Capa and David Seymour, um, and also oh man, I'm spacing on the names. God. But it was founded by a group of, of like-minded photographers who wanted to have more control of their images. The publications of the day were very controlling. I think when you when you shot for a publication, they owned your images and they would take your images and do whatever they wanted with them. They would lay them right. out however they wanted. They would crop them however they wanted. Mm-hmm. They would caption them or use them in ways that were not true to the original spirit of the picture. And that drove these guys nuts. And so they kind of like formed a union. They invited all of their most, you know, favorite photographers, their friends. And they started this little agency called Magnum. And the legend is that they named it Magnum because they were drinking. Either they were drinking from a Magnum of champagne or they loved to get Magnums of champagne. That could be wrong, but that's that's what I remember. My head is full of like, you know gossipy fairy tales about the photography world um so awesome. was it 47 it's either 1925 or 1947 i it, you know that's a pretty big spread but anyway 
so they just kind of grew and grew and grew and they, they added more and more photographers to the roster and it became like this roster of heavy hitters, men and women from all over the world who were incredible at what they were doing. I think a lot of the early photographers were conflict photographers because there was so much war going on. Right. right. Two and Vietnam and all of the stuff in Central America and tons and tons of conflict coverage. But it's still pretty incredible. So if you're using, like, say you're doing something for them. So what is it? You, you take images, you send them to them, and then they license it? Or how, how exactly does it work? If you're a photographer and you're affiliated with them, how, how does that work usually? I think it's different. I think there's lots and lots of situations that can be that can be going on. But just one, one possibility is a... Uh, a photographer is based in an area, let's say China, okay. and there's something going on in China, and that photographer is within, you know, range of that thing, and mm-hmm. they go and they cover it. They make a ton of pictures. You know, they're they're based there, so they have access. Presumably, you know, they know the culture, they know the language, maybe, and they can get in and they can get the story, and then perhaps. They will send it to Magnum, and Magnum will feed it to a lot of different. They'll offer it, you know, appropriate publications, or they'll just put it up on their website, mm-hmm. and you know, publications can find it that way. That's one possible way. It's really simplified. But um, another way is, you know, back in the day, Ladies Home Journal would be like, "We want to send Bert to Russia for three months to cover the." the, you know, Russia behind the wall. No one's, no one's right. done it before. And so, you know, they'll work, they'll work their connections and they'll get burned into Russia or whatever. And then he'll spend three months covering Russia and probably sending pictures as he has them. Back in the day, photographers would, would take their film and go to the airport and they would approach passengers and they would find somebody who was open to carrying film back to New York and then somebody would meet that passenger at the gate in New York and get the film. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah so the they could get times. it back in like one day or, or like, a, yeah. Yeah. That was the quickest way to get film from like far flung places. That's awesome. So when you started uh, interning at Magnum, what were you doing there? Like, um, what did that look like? Every summer at Magnum, at least pre COVID, they would have an annual general meeting. And at this meeting, they discuss the business of the agency. All the photographers come in and they hang out for like a week. There's a ton of meetings. They talk about, you know, all the business of the agency and all the things going on and what they want to do and what things went wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And they also talk about new photographers, nominees. Because see, to get into Magnum as a full member, you have to go through like a multi-tier process. At least this, this was how it was back then. And maybe it's changed now, but you had to get nominated, invited to come in. And you know, every year, tons of photographers submit work to be nominated in the hopes of being nominated. In some years, they nominate nobody. But usually oh, wow. they do. They're real, at least in my opinion, they're, they, they're real purists. Like they, they don't, there's no pressure for them to have to nominate people. Like they only nominate who they love and who they think is doing great work. So you get nominated and you spend a year, or maybe maybe it's two years, but you spend like a significant portion of time kind of 
doing more work, building up your portfolio. And then you come back and you show that work. And then if you get the nod, you get bumped up to associate, kind of the same thing, another year or more. And then if you're lucky, if you're good, if they like what they see or whatever, you get bumped up to full member. And once you're in, you're in for life as long as you want. I mean, you can leave, but full membership is kind of like, you know, the knighthood. So wow. that summer, that was the 50th anniversary of Magnum. So wait, that was the summer of 97. So yeah, I think Magnum was founded in 47, not 1925. That's great. Right. Anyway, so summer of 97, 50th anniversary of Magnum. It was huge. It was a huge, it was like the best time to be an intern because I just got to sit in that office in New York on 25th Street. And we spent the first part of the summer planning for the event. And then the event came and it was like every photographer I'd ever sweated in my life walked through those doors and hung out. Joseph Kadelka walked in with a bottle of vodka. He was one of my heroes at like 11 a.m. on a Thursday and the entire office drank with Joseph for like, you know, rest half the day. Just, wow. Just, it was just big personalities. Like these guys were just big, big personalities. And uh, so, yeah, that summer was just me hanging out in the archive, studying contact sheets, uh, running errands, going to photographers' houses to like pick up stuff, drop off stuff, just gophering. One of my assignments that summer was I got to spend the day with James Noctway, who was like this legendary war photographer. And I went to his studio, helped him load stuff into a cab, uh, these big rolls of print. And we went to ICP uh, and I, helped, I just basically just helped Jim roll out prints that he was showing to an ICP curator for an upcoming show. So I got to just stand there and kind of like, listen to them talk about his work and what they want to do and the plan. And it was wow. Like, the whole time was just wide eyed. I mean, this guy is like, you know, I learned about him three months prior in, in school and you know, 20th century history of photography. Just, and now you're standing just, there. You know, it's just, yeah. It's just all these little, all these little things. I mean, it's just, I was, I was really impressed the whole summer. It was really, I was really just kind of goggly eyed the entire summer. And so the party came and it was huge. It was a huge party. It was so much fun. There was like celebrities there. I had never like been to a party in a New York City loft before. It mm-hmm. was it just felt really it just felt super new and special to me. I was just I just felt like I was floating the entire summer. Wow. You know, that I mean when I took I took an internship uh when I became a recording engineer and the thing and it sounds like this is kind of what happened with you the real value in an internship is like being able to like observe how people that are on top of their game operate. And it's not just the skills (laughs) of like the technical thing, but it's also how they deal with clients, how they deal with other people. Like when you see people that are successful, like operating, it's generally because they have learned how to like do good conflict resolution, how to deal with people that are, you know, maybe demanding something on a deadline, fulfill their needs, keep the relationship going. Like it's a lot of interpersonal stuff. And just like, that was really the main thing that I learned in my internship. And it sounds like, you know, going in there and um, being able to watch someone that is, you know, at the top of their game, present something to, you know, a curator and see how that all plays out and see kind of 
just how that world operates, it sounds kind of the same. Because if you were to walk in there just off the you know street or whatever and, and try and deal with that, you wouldn't really know how that kind of thing goes down. Yeah, you're learning you're learning the culture of that thing, and right. And I and I totally did. I mean, I was just I was just there to soak it up. I mean, luckily. I had the presence of mind to just shut up and listen a lot. Right, and, right. And, you know, not get too ahead of myself. Yeah, I just I just saw I saw how photography in that agency during that summer, how it looked, how it worked, how it sounded. And I went back to college with like just an absolute uh, just burning passion for photography. Like I could not wait to get uh, through school and back to New York. So that was, your, was that your second year when you started that? Yeah, that was my second year. I spent my first year interning at Philip Morris in Manhattan, mm-hmm. which was also so, I mean, first of all, I felt it was a wonderful privilege to be able to do it. Um, but it was like very corporate. I was in an office all day and it just felt like, I don't know, just I wanted to be not in an office. It was a great internship. They did, you know, it was, it was really, I really appreciated it. But I definitely knew what I preferred to not do after that summer. Right. Well, and that's the value, too, is like getting experiences like that. You don't go out and get that experience as your first job and then realize, like, hey, I hate this. <laughs> like, yeah, getting, I mean, realizing that an internship <clears throat> is valuable. I mean, I was just like, you know, counting the minutes until lunch every day and then counting the minutes until five o'clock every day. And then, just yeah, I just I just I just want to be out and about. I want random stimulus, you know. I want things to be different. I, uh, I have a hard time with the same thing all the time. Right. Well, so when you went back to college, did you get another internship after that one, or did you? Oh, you know, I just so here's real quick to go back. Another yeah, yeah. incredible, another incredible experience I had that summer at Magnum was occasionally. Working photographers would roll into New York with an assignment, and they would call around the agencies to see if they had anybody that could assist them on their shoot. And they paid; it was, it was a paying gig. You know, it was kind of like a like a bit of a favor, a little bit of an option. Like, you know, hey, do you have a, do you have any interns sitting around that want to make eight hundred bucks this week assisting me? And then you can right. come back and and so. This woman named Catherine Carno, who's an incredible photographer, she did that. She called into Magnum. Maybe she had a connection there. Maybe she knew somebody in the office. I don't know. But she was like, got any interns? I have a job. I need an assistant. And they asked me, and I jumped all over it. And so for the next week, Catherine and I, we spent the week running around Staten Island. She had an assignment, a week-long assignment from Islands Magazine to cover Staten Island. And Islands Magazine was usually like, you know, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Caribbean, uh, you know, right. far-flung, beautiful, tropical, lush islands. But her assignment was Staten Island. But it was incredible. And she was like a, a hard-nosed working photographer. Like she, she was like the real deal. So I spent that week just assisting her and like learning. I learned so much that week dealing with people. I mean, we went, we ran hard from sunup to sundown every day and she just wow. went after it. It was incredible. It was incredible to watch her work. Um, and we got into like so many adventures that week. Like 
she was incredible at like getting access to people and um, talking her way into things and getting people to like, you know, pose for her or like do their thing for her. And she was just incredible at getting access. Like she would just like knock on doors, tap on windows. And she was so polite about it and nobody was ever offended. Um, You know, people just loved her immediately. And I just got to like watch her do her job that whole week. And that was incredible. Was there ever a moment during the internship where where you learned something that um, you're like, yeah, I don't like this part. Like things that kind of like defined maybe stuff that would go on to stick with you. Um, Like the Philip Morris sounds like was one of them, you know, you didn't really want to work in an office, but were there types of shoots or types of uh, things that you kind of picked up on that you're like, kind of helped define what you actually wanted to do with it? I definitely saw some bad behavior from photographers that summer. Mm-hmm. Not, 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 not anything like criminal or anything, but just right. like big egos, you know, kind of, uh, unnecessarily prickly behavior to mm-hmm. people, that sort of thing. Like, and I'm not even speaking necessarily about magnum photographers. I just, I, I interacted with a ton of photographers that summer, but just, yeah, just, I definitely saw people at the top of their game, sort of like being unnecessarily prickly at times, egotistical at times, having big heads at times, definitely walked away, you know, and at that time I was a nobody not working in any way, any real way, but, I definitely think I took a, a note like, you know, be cool, man. Stay humble. Don't don't abuse people. Right. I mean, that, that's a problem in every industry when folks, totally. when people love what you're doing. It, it's kind of easy to get away with being a dick. And <laughs> and people, you know, they're like, eh, well, we'll, to- we'll tolerate it. Yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll tolerate, tolerate, they'll tolerate they- your dickishness. And then the thing, though, is also, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't make doesn't make a good relationship like like you're working a hundred percent only on the value of your work and if that drops like slightly they'll probably end it you know or if, or if you're out of yeah. favor you're done you know because no one likes you personally <laughs> totally. you don't inspire a good feeling with with your you know interactions so when you got back to savannah um <clears throat> how, how was that going back there after um, you know being up there in new york I came back with whiplash. I mean, that was like, I had just had an incredible summer. I mean, it's just, I mean, these little stories I've told about it were like, you know, three of 50. There was just incredible experiences that whole summer. But I came back to school and I think that was my junior year. And by that time, you know, I was starting to like really get an idea of who I was as a photographer and what I wanted to do. And also in that junior year, things started getting more serious. Like you kind of spend the first year and a half, a lot of foundational classes. I got a bachelor of fine arts. So like, you know, I also studied painting and drawing and figure and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So the first, first year and a half is kind of like a ton of foundation classes. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so the junior year, we're getting serious. I'm getting real serious with my darkroom craft, which there was a heavy, heavy focus on like fine art printing at Savannah. So, you know, I was looking, I was looking forward to it. And when I got back, I enjoyed it. I was not dreading being there. I had a good life in Savannah. I had a lot of good friends. 
Um, I was surrounded by a lot of good photographers down there as well. So I continued to be inspired after that summer. So when you graduated, where did you go? So by the time graduation rolled around, I was pretty not not tired of Savannah, but I was ready to leave. You know, I definitely had like had a good great experience there, but I was ready to move on. Um, you know, also in Savannah, there was you know those professors that I mentioned earlier. They were they were still around. They were great, and I, I loved like those guys were super inspiring too. I, I definitely missed them. But when I left, I went straight to New York. I couldn't wait to go where the photography lived. You know, at that time, '99. Digital wasn't a thing. I mean, it was a thing. It was it was slowly happening. Um, you know, I think like in 98 in Savannah, we got computers with Adobe Photoshop and it was super rudimentary. People were doing wow. some like real basic digital practice with photography. Mm. Nobody had a digital camera yet. It was still fully filmed, but there was digital stuff happening. So I went straight to New York and I applied for and got a full-time job at Magnum. Oh, wow. Not shooting for them, of course, just like working right. in the office. I was like the digital tech. I mean, that's the thing. So I left Savannah with like some understanding of computers and like how digital stuff works. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and so and I was like kind of a, a commodity. Like, you know, there wasn't a ton of, there wasn't a ton of people around who could like run a scanner or, you know, use a computer. <laughs> so I, oh, I, I kind wow. of leveraged that and got a job at Magnum. So what were you doing basically like converting uh prints to to the digital format? They were at the very beginning of creating a digital archive. At that time everything was on print and neg. And they had this massive room that was stacked floor to ceiling with uh, print boxes and file cabinets full of prints and uh, they had a giant room full of negatives and it was all analog. And so that was the very beginning. I think that was like the very, very start of the digital archive at Magnum. And so myself and a couple of other people would run scanners. They had this really beautiful scanner from Agba. It was bigger than a washing machine and dryer. It was absolutely massive. Wow. And uh, yeah, we would just like round the clock Scan, scan, scan. Prints, chromes, negatives. We were just trying to get through the entire archive. Was this like a flatbed scanner or like a drum scanner? It was a flatbed CCD scanner, but it mm -hmm. was huge. Right. So just because of the CCD technology probably at the time, that's why it was so big, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like... It was literally like the size of like a washing machine and dryer company. <laughs> it was so big. Um, and it was like loud and it would like, you know, had, it would like whir and spin and buzz. And it was uh, very cool. So that archive, that must have been amazing to get to transfer all this stuff. Because um, you're probably oh. working with photographers that work that, you know, you admired. So what was great about that, uh, doing that job was when nothing crazy was going on, we would just scan the deep archive, you know, stuff that had happened 50 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever, you know, stuff that was in the past. And that was incredible because I just got to look at work all day. When a young photographer asks me like, you know, what, what can I do to get better or whatever? The first thing I always tell them is look at work. You can't look at enough work. 
get an idea of what works for you, what doesn't, what you love, what you hate, look at work. So, I mean, that's like my first year out of college. All I did was look at work from these like great photographers. And that was incredible. So, but sometimes something would be happening like an event in the world or an event locally. And that would arrive on my desk in a hurry or my partner's desk. I worked with a couple of people. Um, sometimes I run the scanner, sometimes they run the scanner. <clears throat> sometimes I would do retouching, you know, dusting. And I would get to see like these incredible images from like stuff happening all around the world right then and there. Unrest in Jakarta or uh, something happening in Argentina. It would land on our desk and we'd get to see the pictures before, you know, a lot of other people did. It was really interesting. And at the same time, I was at Magnum. I was also like trying to do my own work, you know, like I had uh, made some like inroads at the Newark Star Ledger. Mm -hmm. I did a ton of freelance photography for them at every opportunity. I mean, I was working like all the time. I was working like a pretty regular nine to five job at Magnum. And then like every weekend from Friday evening, Saturday, Sunday, I would like bug the Star Ledger for assignments. Eventually they gave them to me. It took a while. It took like a year of pestering. You know, I was also like working other connections as well. I was just trying to get work. I was just trying to, what I wanted to be was a photographer, not a digital archive guy. I didn't want to right. be, you know, an office guy at Magnum. As cool as it was, I wanted out as quickly as possible. I wanted to be a photographer. Yeah, so I was at Magnum for like two and a half years. And then I went to work for another agency called Art and Commerce, which was another huge big time agency for photographers, but mainly for like fashion and mm -hmm. high end commercial work, like really different side of the coin from Magnum. So it's like some kind of photojournalistic, but also then fashion. Yeah. They had some like photojournalistic photographers, but nobody was covering conflict. Nobody was like, you know, right. doing long form reportage. Um, it was a lot of like, you know, shoots for Burberry or Armani or Versace. Uh, and sometimes other photographers were like high-end interior photographers, like, um, or like doing, you know, beautiful editorial spreads in Greece for, I don't know, high-end travel magazines, like real pretty stuff, it's mostly color, you know, like the photographers at Magnum were like, Susan Mizellis and Inga Marath and James Noctway, like hard-nosed photojournalists. And mm -hmm. the photographers that are in commerce were like Wayne Mazur and David LaChapelle and uh, William Abranowitz, like really very different. Whole, it was a 180 for sure, photographically. Right. So what, what, what was your job there? Same, same. Uh, digital archives. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was in demand in the early 2000s for my scanning and button pushing. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really kind of funny. Like, I just, honestly, it was kind of monkey work. Like, I just, you know, I'd put a print on the bed, I'd hit scan. You know, I'd make a couple of little adjustments, and I would do that a thousand times a day. Or if I wasn't running the scanner, I would be dusting, you know, 150, 200 prints a day. Just, wow. It was piecework, man. It was like, you know, it was definitely... I definitely have dusted 20,000 image files by the time I was in New York 
for four years. It was like I was ready to get that up as soon as possible. So during when you were doing that, were you, were you still like doing the Star Ledger stuff and, and trying yeah. to? Yeah, totally. And if, if even more than before, like I was getting, you know, every year after graduation, I was getting more and more desperate to like just be a photographer. I just wanted to be a working photographer. I wanted to be a photojournalist. I wanted to work for the New York Times. You know, I wanted to work for like the big heavy hitters of the day. You know, I wanted to work for magazines. I wanted to be sent places. I wanted adventure. Ever since I was like in high school, I just wanted adventure. I'm just, I still want that to this day. I just wanted to like see different things, meet different people, smell different smells. I wanted new adventure all the time. And so as each year passed in New York, I was just like striving for it even harder. And I did kind of eventually put together like a modest collection of freelance clients, you know, publications, um, not doing anything exciting, really just sort of covering like for the star ledger, I covered like a thousand community culture events, like folk dancing or, uh, you know, Oktoberfest in some random New Jersey town or this jazz blues player at some random club or, you know, just never, it was never really that I never really attained what I was after photojournalism wise, but yeah, right. I, I was definitely chasing it pretty hard at that time while holding down a full-time job and the full-time job got in the way. I mean, it was hard. Like I had bills to pay. I had, you know, rent or I had rent and whatever. And, and that was not cheap in New York. You know, I was always competing. Like the time for freelance stuff was always competing with my 40 hours a week at my day job. It was hard. Mm. From the day I landed in New York, until like 2005, I was working day jobs and also freelancing. And sometimes the freelancing was great and sometimes it was lean, but I always had a day job. And I had met a woman who's now my wife in like 2001. I met her right, right before 9-11. And we were heavily involved. She was my favorite person. She is my favorite person. Uh, but at that time, like, you know, it was like young love. Like we were like, you know, head over heels for each other. We eventually moved in together and she was working in an office. She was a executive assistant, you know, just nine to fiving it like me. And I think we were both just, we just, at some point we just wanted, we just felt like it was time for a change. And so we decided to pay off all our debt, sell off all the stuff that we could sublet our Manhattan apartment and save up money and travel for a year. So like we went hard as hell on that for, for a minute, like just not doing anything, saving up money, paying off debt, you know, uh, leaning up our possessions, making plans, making plans for adventure. In 2005, we each saved up like 12 grand and uh, got a sub, a person who was going to sublease our apartment for the year. And we, we took off on traveling for a year. I quit my job at Art and Commerce because I, I was tired. I was tired of like, I was tired of like trying to be a photojournalist in New York City. It was hard. It was thankless. It was like, it was so, it was hard to get momentum. And some people are just better at that stuff than others. I think that I wasn't so great at like, I didn't have a ton of connections. Um, I think, you know, looking back, I think 
a large part of being a successful photographer in a place like New York is having a lot of connections. Like you can be a really talented photographer and have no connections and not go anywhere. Or you can be, you know, a fine photographer and have a ton of connections and just like, you know, you go far, man. It's like connect, you know, it's the same in every industry. Connections are yes. really I was about important. To say that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, who you know, and, how you are with relationships, like stuff like that, like that is just as important as the work you do. Yeah. And I think I kind of failed on that front. Like I, I wasn't going out enough. I wasn't going to enough things. I wasn't meeting enough people. I wasn't like rubbing elbows enough. Um, mm. So it was just kind of a hard road to hoe for a bit. And I just got kind of tired of it. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was just like, I'm going to go travel for a year. Like I'm, I'm done. I want to go travel and make a ton of pictures and just, do something else. It's like, let's make a change. I didn't want to just keep beating my head against the wall. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I did a ton of work for publications. I did a ton of assignments at times. It was really good, but it was never like, it was never enough to be like, this is it. Like I have hit, right. I've hit, I've hit the level now. Like this is like, like I always felt like, am I a working photojournalist or am I like a digital tech at an agency? And it's like, I'm kind of more of a digital tech at an agency. Honestly, like that's where, that's where most of my stability is coming in. And, you know, I think a lot of people in my, in my position at that time would have just worked harder and maybe they would have achieved it. Um, but I think I was a little lazy and I was like, I'm tired of this. I want to do something else. Let's try something else. So we saved up, paid off the debt and went traveling for a year. We decided to take a mostly overland route from New York to Argentina. Wow. And originally we weren't going to fly at all, but flying eventually became a necessity at one point. Like, so we uh, left New York. We made our way down to my parents' house in North Carolina, promptly went on vacation with them for a week (laughs) to a beach, to a beach house, like the family beach house vacation. And at that time, Hurricane Katrina hit. And so like we, our next stop was going to be like New Orleans. And then we were maybe going to go to Texas and then we were maybe going to go to Cuba, like, but Katrina hit and it just changed everything at that moment. Cuba was absolutely off the map. Like that we couldn't, we couldn't, it it was just the, the, the whole Gulf region was just a mess Mm -hmm. because a week later, another hurricane came and hurt Cuba pretty bad. So like that was off the plan. So we were in North Carolina, we had backpacks and boots and all of our shots and nowhere to go. And we were like, let's volunteer with the Red Cross and go help people on the Gulf. And so we rang up the Red Cross and we were on a flight to Mobile, Alabama a couple of days later. We landed um, in the Gulf like, I don't know, a couple of days after the hurricane left. And we spent the next two weeks going from like shelter to shelter, place to place, just like volunteering with the Red Cross, which was like, that was an adventure. Like that was a eye-opening life education right there. People had lost every single thing. I mean, people were like literally in those shelters with the stuff they grabbed as they like swam out of their house, you know? It was pretty crazy. Families, individuals, um, you know, every kind of person from every kind of part of life was there. 
And so we spent two weeks there and um, I wasn't really making a lot of pictures during that time mm. for privacy reasons. One and two, right. I was very busy, like doing other stuff, like, you know, helping stuff, whatever. Uh, but so after that, we, after, so we spent that time in, in on the Gulf and the Red Cross gives you a flight in and a flight out. And so for the flight out there, like you got to go somewhere and things were kind of sketchy travel wise in the Gulf. Like, you know, it was kind of hard to like buses were kind of not really happening and just things were weird. Roads were weird. So we took the flight and we went to Reno because we were like, we were exhausted. We were mentally exhausted and emotionally exhausted. And we thought we'll go to Reno casino town. We'll get a cheap hotel and we'll eat buffet food for a, a couple of days. And then we'll figure out where to go next. And we landed at Reno. And it was fucking bike week, and there was not a hotel available for miles. Oh my time. god! But after, but after that, um, we went to California. Took bus. We took a bus to California, and then we just took straight up buses all the way down to Panama. Lots of boats as well. And then Panama took a, a sailboat to Cartagena, Colombia, and then a thousand more buses and boats all the way down to. Buenos Aires, Argentina. And it was like 13 months later, we came back to the States. Oh my God. It was a great adventure. It was was a ton of fun. And I got engaged uh, to my wife, my girlfriend, then now wife in Argentina. And then we came back to New York. And so I never, I decided Uh, that I wasn't going back to full-time work after that. I decided that I was only going to be a photographer. I wasn't uh, trying to be a photojournalist anymore. I would take those assignments if they came easy, but I wasn't chasing that anymore. I had become kind of disillusioned with it. I'd also become disillusioned with the money. Like it was a lot of hard work for not a lot of money. It was really, really hard work. Photojournalism, even today, more so. It's it's really, really hard work. The people doing reportage around the world and covering stories, man, they're working really hard. They're not making a ton of money at it. And I, I applaud them. But I mean, how does that work? I, is, is that like a standard bid they give or do they kind of like, because they kind of control the price, right? Like, like the magazine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, or the typically, I mean, the rates, the rates are all over the place. There's no standard rate, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and depending on who you are as a, as a photojournalist, like if you're well-regarded and famous or well-known or whatever, you might be able to demand some more than others. I would do an assignment for a newspaper and this is like in the 2000s. This is probably different now, but like I'd work for, I'd work my ass off for a whole bunch of hours and come home and scan and develop and caption and file it. And just like those hours and hours and hours of work and I get paid $125. So, you know, Fuck if I was going to, Jesus, I mean, this is, this is, two, this is 2000s money, you know, this is not like, right. I don't know what it is now, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone was like, yeah, it's the same. It's the same fee now. <laughs> um, oh my god! These, public, these publications, like even in the 2000s, they were getting eaten up by larger corporations. Like the the squeeze was on. You know, the squeeze mm-hmm. was happening from the top down, and so the staffers were getting less and less money. There was more and more layoffs. I mean, these newsrooms were getting gutted. You know, even back then, like it just it just seemed like I didn't want to be competing with this squeeze that I was seeing happening all around. Um, well, it's like a rush you know, in my to the time, bottom, too. Totally. In terms of pricing yeah. and stuff. 
Yeah, and also, you know, the the skilled people are going elsewhere. The people who have other options are leaving and going elsewhere. And it's just kind of like a bit of a brain drain as well. You know, like it was just, I mean, even like when I first, first landed in New York and was working for Magnum, I saw photographers who were incredible, people who were mind-blowing to me, you know, still taking two grand to shoot a wedding, you know, like just like doing side hustle work because they had to, because you know, even though they were like the best photographers in the world at that time, they were still hungry for cash. Like it just, it just felt like this is crazy. Like these, it feels like you know teaching or something. Like teachers don't get paid well. It's like these guys are incredible and they're telling these stories and sometimes at great risk to themselves. And the money's just not good. I was done. I was done day jobbing it. So I just, uh, it was hard at first, but luckily we had. We got our apartment back. We were living in East Harlem. My girlfriend then, wife now, uh, had got this apartment a couple of years before meeting me, and it was a deal. So she was paying 500 some dollars a month rent. Oh, my and then God. And I moved in with her. And then I moved in with her, and we were each splitting 500, let's say 525. We were splitting 525 a month rent. So that's how we saved up 12 grand to go traveling for a year. Where was this apartment and, in Manhattan? Yeah, it was in East Harlem, in Spanish Harlem. Oh my! Oh my. Super, super interesting neighborhood. Um, and this was 2002, I think, when I moved in with her. It was in this great old building on East 106th Street, and the lady who owned the building was like a longtime New Yorker. She was this really interesting and quirky jazz lady. She'd had like a long career as like a jazz singer. She was super cool. Her name was Gloria and she treated us really well, but the building was kind of kooky. There was like a um, music school on the first two floors. And then she rented out the floors above it to like oh, a wow. whole cast of characters. So a lot um, of random music going on and stuff too. Oh, for sure. Like it was, you know, man, it was so cool. Like, you could walk into your building some days and there would be like 15 little ballerinas on their way to the ballet Oh my studio. God. You know, or like you'd hear, you know, some six-year-old playing his trumpet uh, through the alley windows or whatever. Like just, it was a great, oh, it was wow. a really great building. I mean, the building was kind of falling apart. It was, it was a tenement. It was an old tenement building and it had been like cut up and divided in all kinds of crazy ways. But it was it was really it was a blessing. Like we, I look back on my time there really fondly. Wow. So we came back to that. We came back to that. The rent went up a little bit, but it was still super cheap. But I was I was hustling. A friend had introduced me to photojournalism weddings at that time, which was kind of a big deal. Like it's it's really standard now. Well, back in the day, wedding photography was super traditional, and oh, kind of locked right, in. Right. It was very very paint by numbers. And at some point, and this is another symptom of the newsroom getting squeezed to death, photojournalists started shooting weddings and they would shoot it like a, like an assignment. They'd come to your wedding and cover it like, shoot it like a war zone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Conflict photographers were exceptionally good at it and wow. they caught on like fire. Yeah. I I mean, bet. Like, yeah. Every photojournalist I knew in New York was shooting weddings on the side. And so I, I came back to New York from South America and jumped headfirst into that. And that was pretty great. I mean, it was, you know, 
it was fun. It was, it was, it was really fun being paid. Well, the, mm. the money was good to be invited into somebody's intimate event with all of their best people. And you get to shoot 30, 40 rolls of film. Cause it was still film. still filmy at that time. There was still a lot of like film reliance at that time and just get fed and hang out and just go crazy. Like I loved making pictures. I love being around people. I love meeting people. And yeah, that yeah. sounds amazing. And, it, and in New York, like the weddings were incredible. Like, you know, oh, you'd shoot a wedding at, 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 at a bookstore or at this crazy loft in Chelsea or on the river in this high rise or just there's all these really interesting locations. And it was rarely ever the same thing twice. It was fun. So I did a ton of that when I came back from South America. And I was also doing more commercial work, more corporate work, headshots and portraits and, you know, stuff that like paid money. And it just felt more friendly. Like the photojournalism world was really hard for me personally. It was just full of turnover. Like you meet, you you make a connection at a publication and a month later they were gone. They went to some other place and I just found it really hard to build momentum. But in the corporate world, if you do a good job for somebody and you don't cause them trouble and you make them look good to the boss, they're going to call you back, you know? And right. I just felt, it just felt good, man, to get called back and to like have some momentum going. You know, you do a good job at a wedding, they're going to tell their friend about you. It just felt like, yes, this is, this is good. This feels doable. So I got further and further away from focusing on working for publications, doing photojournalism. You also, I know some photographers, they'll like send like extra pictures they have just from whatever to, you know, get clearances or whatever. And then they'll send it to like stock companies. Did you ever get into any of that? A little bit. I had, I had an agent uh, that syndicated some of my work called Redux, R-E-D-U-X. And they were super cool. That was like a really cool boutique agency run by a guy named Marcel Saba, who had before Redux run an agency called Saba. He was like a legend in the agency world. Redux took some of my work and syndicated it. And that was kind of cool because, you know, I just set it and forget it. Like I would submit work, they would reject it or accept it. And publications would buy those pictures sometimes. Like in, I mean, even to this day, I still get a check from Redux every year. Sometimes it's 15 bucks, sometimes it's 300 bucks. But, you know, and I find out that like some of my images ran in Leif magazine in Germany or uh, had an image run in the New Yorker last year or a couple of times in the New York Times Sunday magazine. I mean, like these are picture magazines that I would have died to have images in, you know, when I was going for it. And it just kind of happens casually now. So how did that end up working for you? Working basically, I guess that you would have been a freelance, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, I was a freelance photographer taking most assignments. It worked out really well. I was making money, you know? I was like finally sustaining myself on just photography. I was contributing to my wife and I's our, our lives, you know? Like it was it was great. It was it was nice. It felt really good to like be making money and um I had healthcare through my wife's job and just felt good, man. And more and more and more, I, I was shooting purely weddings and corporate work. So at some point you guys moved back down here. How did that happen? I moved to New York in 99. We got married in 08. And in 2010, we had our first kid. 
<laughs> and we're still living in East Harlem. We really held it down there. Really, we really love that building. We, we love the neighborhood. Saw a lot of change in those 10 years. So, you know, my wife, she's from New York. She, is, she was born and raised in Brooklyn. I think she was born in Manhattan, but she was raised in Brooklyn. And uh, so she had family there. Her grandfather, Victor Sorrentino, was his name. <laughs> Such a good Italian name, Victor Sorrentino. And he was a florist. He had always been a florist for like decades. Really cool guy. And he had a house on Fort Hamilton Parkway. And he was old. He was an old guy. And some things happened. He he lost his his house. He had to we had to get him out. And he was old. He was like eighty nine at that time. And he had always taken great care of my wife and her and her youth. He'd always been like a really, really wonderful grandfather to her. And I loved him. He was he was always good to me. And we decided like we need to scoop him up. Like he needs help. We need to we need to help him. As he had helped my wife in her in her youth. And so we left East Harlem and we cobbled all of his money and our money together and we bought a place in Brooklyn. And uh we all moved in together. And we lived in Flatbush for three or four years. And, uh, you know, it was great. We got a, it was a big apartment, doorman building. And uh, for a minute there, I thought that was it. This is going to be it for a long, long time. We had another kid in 2013. And it was just like this really interesting little family, me and my wife, my two kids and a 90 plus year old, all kind of helping each other out. And at some point it was just, it just got to be like harder. We were just tired. We were just tired of New York. We were tired of the schlep. We were tired of like, just, it was hard. Everything was hard and we were tired of it. My wife was commuting to the west side of Manhattan every day from Flatbush. It's kind of a long commute. And everything I was doing was in Manhattan generally. So it was just the commuting was getting to be kind of arduous. And so we decided to make a change. And to come back to Richmond for me or you know, for her to come to Richmond and for me to come back to Richmond, the Richmond boomerang in full effect. Right. And so we sold our place and drove away. He uh, bought a car in Jersey before we sold the place so we could, you know, drive it down to Richmond. And as we were leaving our Brooklyn apartment, my little boy, Michael, at that time, he was like three, mm-hmm. said, Mommy, why is daddy driving the car service? Because <laughs> he had like, oh my God. you know, he, we had never really, I don't know, I guess he had never really like realized that I even could drive because we didn't really own a car until like a week before we moved. Anyway, wow. so we came to Richmond, rented a place. There was, before we moved, there was like a ton of like visits to Richmond to like secure a rental and, you know, get our life kind of mm. in place before we landed. We had the week prior to the move, like shipped the grandfather off to a cousin so that he could kind of miss all the chaos, you know, the mm. moving chaos. Cause he, at that point he was like 92. Oh, wow. And he was still good. Things were still, he was still good to go. Like when we got him at 89, he was, he was good to go. I mean, he was like a, he was still like really mentally and physically super duper healthy at 89. Like really just amazing, amazing physical shape. Great guy. But you know, as the years went on, he's starting to feel his age for sure. But, uh, yeah. So we landed in Richmond and got a rental in Scott's Edition in 2014. Eventually found a house and settled. 
when we came here, we were, it was cold. Like we were like cold. Like we didn't have any connections work-wise. Like my wife didn't have a job. We had a little bit of money in the bank from selling our place. We had a little bit of leeway because the, you know, like the, the New York city to Richmond currency conversion was a little bit in our favor. <clears throat> right. A little bit of money. We had like a limited amount of time to find a place to live, get the family settled, find jobs, get healthcare, you know, et cetera, et cetera, responsible stuff. And we did, we, she found a job super quick, a really, really great job that she still has. And, um, I started meeting the local photographers here in Richmond, slowly, slowly, you know, meeting the network. Hell yeah. I mean, God, so that's gotta be a big change from working on stuff up in New York and working on stuff in Richmond. How would you compare the two? I mean, Richmond's a lot smaller, see industry wise. I mean, like the, the, I mean, that's a, maybe a dumb thing to say, but like the photography industry here is like probably less than a hundred people, you know, in New York, it's like, it's insane how many photographers there were. And it's insane in New York, how incredible the photographers were. Like Mm -hmm. I was always competing with like people who were just incredible. Like my, you know, just. I would I would go and submit my book for things. That's another thing. Back in the days, I used to submit a book. Like if I was trying to get a job for something through a publication or uh, a corporation that had like you know a certain kind of job, I would submit my book. But I would drop off a physical book, and sometimes I would, I would include a FedEx return label, and sometimes I'll just go pick it back up. Sometimes I would go drop off my book, and I would see other books in a pile, and it's like, dude, I'm not going to get this job because these other books are like from photographers who are like Pulitzer winners and just, you know, had storied careers and are amazing. Like just, just, that was a common thing to like realize that you were, you were not punching your weight. You're absolutely right. outgunned all the time. Uh, but in Richmond, it was a little chiller, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as intense. There's great photographers here for sure. But, uh, everything about Richmond was chiller, you know, every aspect of life from my working life to my personal life, just, you know, I could just drive to the store, park the car and drive home versus like, you know, getting a granny cart, walking six blocks to the key foods. The key foods is tiny. They have, you know, it's, it's a crazy scene in the key foods, granny cart back and the snow or the ice. It's just, Everything oh, here God. is just a lot chiller, man. And uh, and with kids, and, chiller and, 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 is much better because yes. it's just the kids' aspect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think back. I think back to life in New York with two kids and an old man, and it was like every move was hard. You know, every time you wanted to go somewhere with the kids, it was like you got to pack the bag, you got to schlep the stroller up and down the subway steps or into the cab or whatever. You got to walk a ton of blocks. You know, and I miss some aspect of that. I miss the physicality of New York, like all the walking and the, you know, the, the getting around. But at the same time, like after a couple of years of that with kids, it was like, I'm done. I can't, I can't keep, yeah, man, this is hard. Yeah. Coming to Richmond was, I feel like I retired almost. I feel like I retired to Richmond. Wow. But yet still being able to work. It's just the stress is so much lower. Work all the time. But, you know, I've said, God, if anyone who's listening to this, who knows me, they're going to recognize this when I say it all the time, but it's like, 
it's like a baseball when you're on deck to hit and you got that bat with the lead weight on it and you swing that right. bat with the lead weight a couple of times so that when you step up to the plate, the bat feels real light and real peppy. And I kind of feel like how that's the situation with New York versus Richmond. Like I spent years swinging a really, really heavy bat. And when I landed in Richmond, I got to kind of remove that, that lead weight and just feels everything just feels better here. I'm super happy here. Oh yeah. Well, the thing I notice a lot about your stuff, um, you know, you, you have your Instagram and, um, you post a lot of like, I guess your personal shots. And that's, that's one thing that, um, I was kind of thinking about is, you know, when you're working commercially, sometimes it can either enhance your, your love of it or it can kill it. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you seem to have like retained your passion for photography. Yeah, I have. It was not consistent though. I mean, I definitely went through a time where I was like photographically depressed. When I came back from South America, photography felt weird to me. I was having a kind of an identity crisis. You know, I was kind of like between the worlds and I didn't really think shooting weddings and working for corporations was very cool. You know, I, I, right, right. I felt like photojournalism was very cool and flashy and I had a hard time like fully accepting, like letting that go to be much less cool. And that sounds really right. flimsy, I'm sure. But like, there was a time where I like didn't do any personal work, you know, where I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to go shoot a wedding. And that's all the photography I'm going to do this week. I'm just going to shoot a wedding. That's who I am. I'm a fucking wedding photographer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time I just kind of was bored. I definitely kind of was sleepwalking through photography for a long time. I sold mm -hmm. off all my old film cameras and, um, I wasn't really, I wasn't really going after a lot of extra stuff. I definitely had a couple of uh, flashy pursuits where, like, I went after something and got it. Like, I don't know, I did some work for the New York Times with a good friend of mine. That was amazing. That happened, like, you know, after South America. That was really great. Did a, a project on this place in the Bowery called Eleven Spring. That was pretty exciting. It ended up being like a book project and oh wow, being kind of being kind of special. I mean, it wasn't like my own, just my own solo book, but but a book project sprung out of that whole thing, and a lot of my work was included oh, in that yeah. project. Just you know, there was definitely some like little interesting tidbits that weren't weddings and corporate stuff during that time. But for the most part, I was just kind of like I don't know, a little sad about photography. Anyway, so there was a moment where I was not doing a lot of personal work, hardly any. And uh, when I came back to Richmond, I don't know, just felt more open and free. Like I had more time. I had a little bit more money in my pocket, had a little bit, had a little bit more access. Um, everything wasn't so hard. Like going out into the world to make pictures wasn't so hard. So I started uh, making more work down here. And now like I have completely love when I have time grabbing my favorite cameras and going out and making pictures, you know, sometimes if I have the time, I'll spend the whole day just like stalking Richmond, making pictures of things that I like. And I've made some work that I really care about the past couple of years. And that's, yeah, that's I mean, what I've been putting I've up been on Instagram. You can tell, like just looking at it, that like, this is something you're doing because you love, you know? I mean, you can also see the skill in it. You can also <laughs> see you're doing it because you're good, but like, 
Yeah, it, it, there's just something about it. Are you, are you developing that stuff yourself, or how? You know, I I got into photography years ago, and um, I ended up stopping kind of when the local uh, all the local places that would do, um, you know, development when when they stopped, I I was kind of like you know I'd have to mail it off or wait for like one lab to run it. Um, how do you deal with developing stuff these days? Because like for the fun stuff, you're you're using film. Um, do you develop it yourself or do you use one of the local labs? I do it myself. I shoot a lot of black and white. So, I mean, I shoot film because I've always shot film, right? I, I was I was trained in film. I started in film. Mm-hmm. I'm a film guy my whole life, my whole photography life. When I came back to Richmond and I started doing a lot more personal work, I at first would send everything off, and that is prohibitively expensive. So yeah. <laughs> I eventually was like, I know how to process this shit. I know what to, I know what to do. Like, so I, I eventually started building my little setup, you know, like my, the gear that is required to process film. So now I've got like a full on little system here. I don't have a dark room, but I can rattle off 25 rolls of film in a weekend easy through processing here. I use tanks and black bags and. Right. Um, yeah. That's what I was about to ask you. If you, you use the bags. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's like, I, I clean up the kitchen, kind of like get my little area all cleaned up, and I just like hammer out some film with the AirPods in, watching old Seinfeld reruns or something, you know. Hell yeah! So what are you, what are you really kind of geeking out on, like shooting with nowadays, like camera wise? Camera camera wise, well, so some old executive got people. Uh, I said guys. When I say guys, I mean everybody. But so, right. So, so you know, some some people. When they get to a certain level of their career, uh, they go out and they get themselves a Ferrari or whatever, a Porsche, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, two decades into this thing now. So I've been kind of collecting my most favorite cameras of my photography life for the past bunch of years. So I shoot with Leica 35 millimeter cameras. And I recently picked up a really amazing Toyo 4x5 field camera. It's a Japanese camera. But it's like really nice. It's like sleek. It's very beautiful. Um, a friend of mine has one, and I saw his, and I was like, "Yeah, I want that." that that's oh, wow. I just connected with it instantly. So I've been shooting with that a lot lately. I've got some medium format cameras as well that I love. But you know, I I bought the toys that I've always wanted. I've been shooting with Leica since my early days, but um, but now I have like two, and they're like my favorite my favorite cameras to shoot with. So when I go out just for fun, I take those cameras. But when I shoot professionally, I have like Canon digital cameras that I use. So kind of closing up here, man, I want to thank you for talking with me. Uh, do you have any advice for like someone that's actually, maybe they're, you know, wanting to pursue something like this and they're maybe younger or something like that to, to actually how to make what you're aiming for happen in your life? God, there's no one way, man. It's, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of people become successful and I've seen a lot of people flame out. It's, it's really, it's really hard to be a creative person with out like a formula paint by numbers path ahead of you. A lot of times you join a company and I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, there's kind of like a ladder you can see, you know, but right. Being a, a freelance worker is it's wild and woolly, man. Like, you have to figure out a way to support yourself. You know, you've got to find out some way to like get some money coming in 
and health insurance if you can, just so yeah. you can, the, the, you know, the real, the real trick to becoming a successful freelance or creative person is create a foundation where if you do fail, it's not going to destroy you, you know, especially if you're, if you're trying to do it in a place like New York city, time and time again, I would see people land in New York, live crazy. They'd hit a setback and they had to go because they couldn't recover from it. It happened all the time. So you got to try and set yourself up so that, you know, if you hit a setback, you can recover and then keep moving forward. So set up your foundation as best you can make as many, if you're young, make as many connections as you can meet as many people as you can be a good person, be diligent, do what you promised, you know, be on time man. like honest to God, like right now, I think like a large portion of any success I may have is because I call people back, I answer the phone and I show up on time, <laughs> you know, like, like that is 60% of the whole deal right there. That goes a long uh, way. These, these clients, they don't have to, you know, if you're, if you're working to, to having clients, if that's what you need, like if that's what success to you is having clients, like they can call anybody, you know, so make them want to call you. If you're a photographer, look at work. You can't look at enough work. Yeah, I just feel like look at books, look at the internet, find photographers that you love and look at all of their work. Find a way to get at their work. That's that's what it's been for me mostly. It's like looking at work and knowing what I love. So that when I'm out in the world and I see something, like I instantly know like this is the thing I want to photograph. Like this is a thing that speaks to me visually. And that's how I make my choices my my brain is like i'm constantly refining my eyes and my brain to know what it is that i love when i see it through the viewfinder and that concludes my interview with michael simon to see michael's work you can check him out on instagram at michael underscore simon for more episodes like this check out our website variousthingspodcast.com or check out your favorite podcast streaming service. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.